Bart, I've asked you not to whistle that annoying tune. Welcome to another episode of Simpsons is Greater Than, a Simpsons podcast where we take a look at everything that's Simpsons related all the way from the cultural impact to whatever you can think of. If it has an overbite and spikes, we talk about it on this podcast. As always, I'm your host, Warren, better known to some of you as Bart of Darkness. You might know me from my Simpsons collection on Instagram and Twitter. Be honest, it's great, isn't it? Go ahead and say it's great if you want to. But if not, go check it out when you're done with this episode. Okay, so I have no problem admitting that I really, really like this episode because Bill Morrison is responsible for some of my favorite drawings of The Simpsons, period. Bill also co-founded Bongo Comics with Matt Groening, He worked in the marketing department for The Simpsons all throughout the 90s, and he also helped design the characters for Futurama. So you're going to learn a lot from this interview, including why Bart's shirt is blue. Sometimes. So let's get into the interview, okay? Episode 14. Let's go. So that's that's going to be cool. I'd rather listen to that one. I would much rather listen to that also because I don't have to host it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, we might as well get into it. Um, Bill, I really appreciate you hanging out today. It's going to be a good time to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I'm excited about it. Well, me too. It's my pleasure to be here. It's sort of a rainy uh, Sunday afternoon here. So kind of the perfect day to just sit and talk to your computer. Yeah, it's it's actually raining where I am as well. And uh, I was watching the Jaguars. lose before I started recording. So what better to do than this, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I want to know, Bill, what were some influences on your art? And, you know, how how old were you when you realized that you liked to draw? Like, when did that sort of become apparent to you? Well, um, I'm told I was three years old when my older sister, who's uh, 11 years older than I am, uh, sat me down at the kitchen table and gave me my first drawing lesson. And According to her, I she drew like a little stick figure and then told me to imitate that. And she said, I'm going to do something for, I'll be back in 10 minutes. And when I get back, I want you to show me what you did. <laughs> so she wanted me to just copy her simple little stick figure. And apparently when she got back, I had way improved on what she did (laughs) because like she just drew little sticks for arms and for the body and the legs. And I gave everything like a thickness. So like a double line for the body, double lines for the arms and legs, added all kinds of detail to the face, you know, gave, gave the figure hair and clothing. (laughs) And anyway, she, you know, I guess she would have been about 14 and, you know, so she was like a, typical teenage girl and she started screaming and flipping out and she said oh my god you're gonna be an artist and I just remember her telling me about it so it kind of seems like a memory but you know I guess it's not really but um, (laughs) I do remember for years after that her you know coaching me she recognized some sort of an ability 
and she wanted to kind of nurture that. So every chance she had, she sat me down with pencil and paper and crayons and she would show me how to draw whatever I was into. Here's how you draw Batman. Here's how you draw Frankenstein. Wow. Um, yeah. So I would go through all these phases, you know, growing up, different things that I was into. And, uh, you know, I had my Snoopy period and I had, my, <laughs> of course, Batman has kind of been a constant throughout my whole life. For sure. Well, I, you know, I've also, you know, I've read that you really like to draw Spider-Man in junior high. I read an older interview with you yeah. and uh, where, where you mentioned that, you know, Spider-Man was one of the things you realized, like, wow, this is not bad. You know, uh, why Spider-Man? Were you a big Marvel guy? I was a DC guy growing up. Um only really because my uh, the store that my dad took me to to buy comic books didn't carry Marvel. Oddly, it was it was you know just kind of like a mom and pop uh, bookstore, just a corner bookstore, and they had Archie, they had Dell Comics, you know Donald Duck, Mickey Mouse, all that. Uh, they had DC, Harvey, Casper, and Richie Rich, and all, all those guys, um, but they didn't have Marvel. So the only Marvel comics that I knew. Uh, my best friend had one Fantastic Four, and it was always lying around in his basement. So whenever we would play down in his basement, games or whatever, if if I got bored, I would pick up this comic book and I'd go, oh, yeah, I remember this. You know, boring superheroes with no capes, no masks. <laughs> they all have the same outfit for some stupid reason. You know, I just thought it was the dumbest comic book ever. And I and I'd seen Spider-Man on TV. They had Spider-Man cartoons and they also had the Marvel superheroes, those real limited animation cartoons that were on weekdays. So that so I knew oh, Captain yeah. America, I knew the Hulk, Thor, Iron Man, Submariner, Spider-Man, but um they they just didn't appeal to me. I was I was a DC kid. But when I got a little bit older, it's sort of like my taste changed. And my sister's, a friend of my sister brought over some Marvel comics that she said her brother was getting rid of. And I was all excited at first because she says, oh, I got some comic books. My brother didn't want them. And I'm thinking, oh, there might be some Batmans I don't have. And she gives me these comics and it's like Thor and Iron Man. And I was just, uh. <laughs> You're like, what is this crap? <laughs> yeah. Uh, why can't it be something good? But then I think there was a rainy day and I didn't have anything else to do. And I picked up those comics. And at this point, I'm, you know, like 14, 13, 14. You know, it was like, holy crap, these are really good. You know, these are comics for a kid my age now. So I got totally into Marvel at that point. I think the reason I'd like to draw Spider-Man is because he had the full face mask. So I didn't have to draw... <laughs> mouths <laughs> or eyes or noses or ears and he's just really cool looking i mean honestly yeah. like if, even if that was the answer i would be like yeah that makes sense <laughs> i did i did really like the steve ditko design of the the eye i don't know what you'd call those eye pieces but it's really great yeah i mean he had a great costume i remember thinking when i would draw him i would think wow i can't believe they have to draw this webbing every time <laughs> like, i must get really boring after a while they have to keep drawing that webbing nowadays i mean you know the way they draw iron man's armor there's so many details i don't know how those guys keep up they, they must just have model sheets plastered all over the walls so they can remember all those little it's like tennis shoes tennis shoes used to be very simple you know it was just like canvas and a rubber sole and laces <laughs> and now there's like all these you know sections and different 
interlocking pieces and all yeah, this crazy Yeah, it's like, things. why do you need all that? Is that functional <laughs> or is it just designed to make artists who have to draw those go crazy? Yeah, I mean, and well, you know, some maybe some people love the idea of it being hard to draw. Who knows? But <laughs> I don't know. I like simplicity. Yeah, simplicity is nice. I mean, that's one of the reasons the Simpsons are fun to draw. They, they are actually deceptively difficult to draw, but they're also simple. There's some basic rules you have to follow. It's not a lot to remember and, you know, it's not so bad. Yeah. Well, and and I I definitely have some, you know, I have some questions about that because I am curious what that was like. But, you know, before you started working with The Simpsons and Bongo, you know, you drew a ton of promotional art for many well-known Disney films, Lady and the Tramp, Bambi, Peter Pan, The Jungle Book. I mean, so many, it goes on and on. Um, what, What was that experience like and how did it lead you to working with The Simpsons? Well, I started, uh, my first job in Hollywood was doing movie advertising. So I worked for a, not really a studio, it was like an agency, but it was sort of a boutique agency that catered only to the film industry. So we did TV guide ads and um, billboards, but mostly we did movie posters. And while I was there, actually around the same time I was hired, they hired an art director whose name was Millie Smythe, who if you're a Simpsons fan, you probably know her name. For sure. And Millie was friends with Matt Groening. And this was before The Simpsons and back when Matt was just kind of a struggling underground cartoonist and, uh, you know, working on Life in Hell, but also taking on freelance jobs to pay the bills. So um, Millie brought him in to write copy for some of the movie posters that we did. So that's where I first met Matt. And then, you know, I... Uh, I think Millie ended up leaving that agency and then I left a year later. You know, fast forward to 1990 and The Simpsons has been on the Tracy Ullman show for a few years, but now it's got its own primetime show. And I get this call from Millie and I haven't spoken to her in, you know, two or three years. And she said, I know you're, you know, doing a lot of cartoon stuff now because I was at the studio now where I was doing all the Disney work. So she said, you know, I'm working with Matt Craning and, you know, I I don't know if you've heard of his show, The Simpsons. (laughs) And it was, (laughs) it was kind of back early enough that you could actually say that with a straight face. And right. I mean, you would say that not knowing if people had seen the show or not. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was somewhat famous, but not that famous. So anyway, I'm I'm kind of ahead of myself because that's how I got started with The Simpsons. But when I was at the studio after the agency where I met Millie and Matt, I was doing just general advertising. So, you know, I wasn't really known then for doing cartoon stuff. I was more known as a kind of a photorealistic painter. So I was doing airbrush art, you know, I was doing uh, product advertising. I did like labels for Nestle's Quick, you know, just just all kinds of different things, album covers. And, you know, we, we did just general advertising illustration. So I was doing a lot of things. And one of the jobs that came into the, into the studio was Disney was re-releasing Cinderella into theaters. And they were doing videos back then. So they were releasing classic films onto video. But they were also, in addition to, to doing like one new animated film per year, um, they were also re-releasing a couple of classics into theaters. So when they would do that, they would need, you know, a movie poster, one sheet. So that job came into the studio. It fell to me because I was, I think my boss knew that I was adept at doing cartooning, even though I was mostly doing photorealistic work. So that job fell to me. I I did uh, two posters for Cinderella. One was a teaser uh, and the other one was like more of a broad release kind of a thing. And Disney really 
uh, liked what I did and they kept giving the studio all of their advertising work. So um, I think the first new film I did was Oliver and Company and then The Little Mermaid and uh, The Rescuers Down Under, uh, Roller Coaster Rabbit, which was a Roger Rabbit short cartoon. Great one. Um, Prince and the Pauper, which was a Mickey Mouse featurette. So I got to paint Mickey and Donald and Goofy and all the classic, uh, not all, but some of the classic Disney characters. So cool. And um, that was like a dream come true because I, you know, I was raised on Disney like most of us were. And it was, um, it was just really fun. I mean, I, I actually had a goal because I, after a while I had done so many of the classics that I thought, you know, if I stay at the studio long enough and if Disney keeps re-releasing their classics into theaters, I could get to a point where I could have done, I will have done a poster for every Disney animated feature. <laughs> so that became sort of a goal. Right. Like, yeah, stay, you know, do this job long enough that, you know, I can do Pinocchio, Fantasia, all the favorites. Um, but so great. It's hard to say this because sometimes I say, unfortunately, it's natural to say, but unfortunately, that dream was dashed. <laughs> um, but it was dashed by The Simpsons. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> The Simpsons came calling, and uh, so I ended up leaving that studio, and I didn't. I didn't get to go through the whole list of Disney features. You did. You didn't go the distance, unfortunately. Oh. But but I did but. do. I did Peter Pan, and uh, like you mentioned, the Jungle Book, uh, Cinderella, Bambi, some of the you know pretty major ones. So. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, anyone listening to this, Bill has drawn you know not just with Disney, but so many things that you you know, whether you realize it or not, that you love, you love that art and Bill did it. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, um, one of the, one of the ones that has come up recently that a lot of people didn't know I did is when I was at that first job that I mentioned in Hollywood doing the just general movie advertising, I did the artwork for the movie house, which was a, a horror movie. And a lot of people remember the image on the poster, which was a severed rotting hand, like pushing a door buzzer. Oh yeah. 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 Um, and uh, when people hear that I did that, they can't believe it because it's hard to look at what I do on things like the Simpsons and Disney and think, Oh, the same person painted this grisly, you know, disgusting, horrible, rotted, <laughs> severed hand. I, you know, I'm really curious, you know, as someone who drew, a lot of more detailed and realistic stuff, you know, getting your start that way. You mentioned how different it was to draw the Simpsons. Um, you know, what was it like for you to move into, you know, something like that? It, it was fairly easy. I remember Millie had me come over to her studio and she gave me some, you know, a few basic Simpsons drawing lessons. And I, I just remember fairly quickly I didn't get a lot of corrections. And I remember fairly quickly her telling me that Fox really liked the work I was doing. And then after six months, they actually hired me because they, they thought I was, I'd sort of become the main artist for Simpsons merchandise at that point. It's wild. So I, I remember it being fun. Um, it was a little weird because I think when you're used to drawing Disney characters or you're used to drawing things that are very detailed and very realistic, Sometimes you want to break the rules when you're given characters that are designed more simply and, you know, just don't have all that detail. Um, right. So, so a lot of, a lot of my drawings, I would, I think I would try to 
put in more than was really needed. And I had to force myself to pull back. I can totally see that. That was probably the hardest thing. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, because they're so flat in comparison to, you know, so many, so many things that you did. I can see that being, you know, sort of a transitional thing. You want to sort of spice it up. Right. Um, I remember in the early bongo days, um, that was really hard because we, in the early days, we wanted to, as much as possible, replicate the look of the TV show. And the TV show, the characters have what we call a deadline, which is just a straight line that doesn't get thick and thin. If you look at a lot of comic book work, you'll see artists use a brush, which gives them like a real thin line at the beginning, and then it might kind of thicken up in the middle and then get thin again at the end. Um, if you look at like classic superhero artwork. Oh, yeah. And, and for the, the Simpsons, it was it was easy enough to do that in the comic books because we were trying really hard to make it look like the TV show. So we would just use technical ink pens, which just give you a, a consistent, you know, deadline. Um, but when we started doing Radioactive Man, I had to really fight the urge to get out a brush and make it look like a superhero comic. I really oh, wanted, yeah. wanted it to have that bold, thick and thin with, with lots of, um, you know, black areas filled in, lots, lots of shaded areas. You know, it started sort of pulling away from the look of the TV show. It, it, you know, at first it was, it was sort of like, oh, I don't know if we can get away with this. So we kept it kind of looking more like the TV show. But little by little, it started looking more like comic book art. And um, Matt Groening ended up loving it. I mean, he, he um, we didn't really have to be that worried because he liked that thick and thin look. He liked that comic book look. Yeah, I I love I love the way those comics look. Like they are, and I mean I love the way the Simpsons comics look, and I, you know, but especially those Radioactive Man ones are really. I mean they're they are so cool. Like they have their own thing going on, and uh, you know I'm a big fan of those. They look awesome. Oh, thanks. Trials of Horror was kind of the same way because we started that one just using the, the regular bongo artists and keeping the characters on model, and we we brought in writers from the world of comic books who weren't the normal writers they were well known for something else so we had like in the first issue we had jeff smith who was known for his comic book bone and we brought in uh, mike allred who was doing his comic madman at the time and james robinson who was a writer for dc and he was working on starman and we only let them write we didn't let them draw the books so we had like the regular simpsons artists do the, do the artwork and after a few issues, we started sort of getting a little more bold. Actually, it was, I think it was issue four. I approached this artist that I really like named Jeff Darrow. And I asked him if he would do a pinup. And Jeff wanted to, he, he came from the world of animation. So he really wanted to um, put everything on model and make it look exactly like the TV show. So he asked for model sheets and, you know, he said, give me everything you can because I really want to make this look, you know, perfectly on model. And I said, well, you know, Jeff, I think since this is just a pinup, I think your fans would like to see how you do The Simpsons. So maybe we could, you know, just put it a little more in the direction of your style. And um, he said, oh, well, okay, if you're, you know, if you're fine with that, sure. So I was a little bit nervous because we'd never, at that point, we'd never really done anything that was not really on model right and um 
again, it turned out Matt loved it. You know, he looked at that and he said, you know, from now on, let's let artists do their own style. Um, bringing guest artists on Trias of Horror and, you know, just let, let them have fun. He said, the only two things is um, the characters should always have the bulgy eyeballs and they should always <laughs> have the overbites. Right. Um, and those were the only two rules. He said, beyond that, let them just do their own thing because it's it's going to be fun for us to see what they do and, and fun for the fans. That That's really interesting because, you know, I, I love the history of, you know, how uh, the Treehouse of Horror episodes were inspired by a comic in the first place. And I love that a lot of those covers, especially around four and onward, are a real nod to the old, you know, EC Comics, Vault of Horror comics. You know, and they look like they look like paintings. They're beautiful. It's these amazing pieces of art. I think it's some of the best art on, you know, in any of the comics because they're all they're all so different and unique. I really, oh, really love those covers. Thanks. <laughs> it's great. Um, well, you know, when you take a look at Bill Morrison, it's it's sort of unreal how many things you've drawn for The Simpsons, T-shirts, posters, DVD covers, toy packaging. Uh, do you have any personal favorites or just ones that you think someone might immediately recognize that? they may not realize that you were involved in. Oh man, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Take your, take your time, Bill, do a lap, whatever you got to do. You know, <laughs> um, I know a lot of the early video game packaging was, was fun to do. And, and I look at some of those images and even though they're not really on model compared to the way the show is drawn now. Right. Um, it's funny because sometimes I'll look at something I drew 30 years ago and I go, Oh, it's horrible. It's off model. And then I realized, well, the show looked like that back then. You know, it's it off-model compared to today's look of the show. But really, it, it wasn't off-model compared to 1992 or whatever. No. And again, those video games, I actually have most of the posters from them framed in this room somewhere. And uh, that's some of my, you know, I feel like I'm just saying everything you've done is some of my favorite art, Bill, but it is. And uh, I love those videos, especially Bart's Nightmare and uh, Space Mutants. I think both of those are just incredible. Oh, yeah. Um, Bart's Nightmare, that was a favorite one. I love the green shirt. <laughs> People always ask about the, the color changes on the shirt for the merchandise. If you can give some insight into that, because I know a little, but that is something that I get asked a lot as a collector. And if you know something, that would be great information. Well, in the early days of the of licensing and merchandising, you know, you had the way you had the color of Bart's shirt on the show. And a lot of the licensees would say, well, this isn't going to really work with our packaging because we've got a red background. And, you know, so we need to have some options we'll put them in the red shirt whenever we can but we'd like to be able to put them in a blue shirt or put them in a green shirt and i think it was early enough that uh matt and millie Smythe, who um i mentioned before millie was the one who did all the approvals on every aspect of the merchandise wow. um and she worked with gracie films people over there but um she was matt's liaison so you know, Matt was way too busy to look at everything, but Millie would look at something and she would have to make a decision. And if a licensee said, can we put Bart in a green shirt? There didn't seem to be a big reason why they shouldn't or couldn't. So they were given that leeway in the early days. Um, but I think over time, I don't really know why things got more strict, but at some point, 
they kind of cracked down on the on the licensees and said, no, he has, to, you know, you're gonna have to work around this. He has to look like he looks on the show. So you have to put him in the red shirt. Oddly, because Matt Groening owned the publishing rights or still owns the publishing rights to The Simpsons, when we started Bongo, we didn't really have to follow all the same rules that licensees would because we were not a licensee. Oh, wow. You know, we were we were just working for the creator of the show. So Bongo, Bongo comics are really more like creator-owned comics and not at all licensed comics. So never even um, thought about that. That's, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So we were able to kind of do whatever we wanted without um, having to ask permission from Fox. But the the flip side of that is that we wanted our comics to reflect the show and to be as much like the show as possible. I always describe them as like companion pieces. So we tried to keep everything in the same continuity. That's kind of hard because sometimes the show itself doesn't keep everything in continuity. Right. <laughs> so, um, but we did, you know, we did our best to really make sort of a seamless transition from the, the show into the comic books. Um, but for some reason, the the blue shirt kind of stuck with us when it came to Bartman. So um, we designed Bartman or we, you know, went off of what was done on the show, but we gave him the blue shirt instead of the red shirt. And that just kind of stuck. So whenever we had Bart as Bartman, we put him in the blue shirt. I love that. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I love, I'm a huge fan of the green shirt. Uh, because, you know, you do see it in a few things. There's a few dolls where Bart's wearing a green shirt on that early Mattel packaging. He's wearing a green shirt a lot. Um, and, you know, what I think is funny is that I feel like his shirt was intended to always be sort of orange. Yeah. But it was always perceived as red and it, yeah. all, it just sort of became red. And, you know, I, I feel like you see the blue shirt in a lot of merchandising until you get to around like 98, I feel like that's when everything started switching to the red and yellow packaging. And that's when they sort of just, you know, one of the last things I I remember seeing it on was uh, that set of TV guide covers with the four panels. Oh yeah. Um, And I, I I remember thinking like, wow, that's really late for him to have a blue shirt on. But anytime I find something like 97, 98 uh, you know, that's not in the comics where he's wearing a blue shirt. I'm like, wow, that's, that seems late in the game. But that's the one where they're on the sofa, right? Yeah. Did you draw that bill? I did draw that. And, <laughs> and I'm wondering why we put him in the blue shirt on that one. He's got the blue shirt. I can I literally know. see it above my computer. <laughs> I, I will tell you in the early days, before we had Photoshop, we used to actually paint cells for a lot of that merchandise art. Oh, wow. Um, especially the video games. I know a lot of those were... Um, we would just get the cell colors from either Klasky Chupo or then when it switched to film Roman, we would get the color codes. So we knew what yellow we had to use for the Simpson skin color, et cetera. And um, did you guys go by PMS colors? Did you use PMS colors for that? We, we used PMS colors when we, whenever we called something out like for the printer, but if we, if I was doing a piece of art and providing finished color art, you know, via cell painting, we would just find out what, um, like there was a, a company called Cartoon Color. And I think they did all the cell vinyl for for probably most of the animated shows, but um, but for The Simpsons. So we, I, I'm sure we talked to somebody over at, probably at Klesky Chupo, whoever was doing the color design. 
and said, you know, can you give us a chart of what colors you use for all these different things so we can buy those colors from Cell Vinyl and then replicate on what we're what we're doing. But I think maybe the Mattel stuff um, might have been cell painted because that was super early. Wow. That was very early. Yeah. 1990. Um, and that, you know, the white boxes on that is some of my favorite stuff too. Oh yeah. Those, those are real striking. I like the green logo and, uh, yeah. Anything Mattel, you can actually see this little Bart guy here. Oh yeah. Mattel as well. I love that white box with the green letters. Uh huh. So great. See, Bill, this is why you're a perfect guest because as a collector, um, the stuff that I nerd out about just beyond the show itself <laughs> is the merchandising. I mean, I, I could yeah. seriously, if I didn't restrict myself, I could make this interview four hours long because I have, you know, so many questions about the merchandise. Um, and that's, you know, I find that the reason I ask about PMS and all that is I have a background in screen printing and, you know, art and stuff like that. So I'm always curious, like what color codes people use the Pantone and all of that. So, um, interesting stuff. I know there were, um, kind of like translation charts. So if something was a certain color of cell vinyl, there was like a PMS equivalent. Right. So you could see like, you know, if you had to use PMS, what the equivalent would be. Or like a hex code for Photoshop now. I know yeah. a lot of people use those, which I kind of hate. Yeah. <laughs> a little harder to uh, translate to, to Pantone because they're not, not always an exact match. Yeah, they're not always exact. Um, well, I do want to talk about Simpsons comics uh, and stories. The first thing you guys did before Bongo was really a thing. Um, you know, what really brought that on aside from just your work with the show? And what was it like starting Bongo with Matt? That was that was amazing. The way it started is we were doing Simpsons Illustrated. And as I mentioned before, Matt retained all the publishing rights to the Simpsons. So he was the one actually putting out the Rainy Day Fun Book, the Uncensored Family Album, the calendars that came out every year. Love so those. So those were all being done by Matt and the, the people that he kind of gathered around him. I was one of those people. Uh, Millie, Stephen, Cindy Vance, uh, Peter Alexander. So there was kind of like a core group of us who were doing all this publishing stuff. And Welsh Publishing uh, made a deal with Matt to do Simpsons Illustrated magazine, which if people don't know, it was like a, a fan magazine. So it was, it, it had comics in it, but it also had puzzles and games and interviews with you know, the voice actors and the animators and Matt himself and uh, letters from fans. I love all that stuff. Fan letters, which we loved. That was like one of our favorite sections. So anyway, we were, we were all working on the magazine already. And the first issue had a, a one, had one page of comics and I was asked to draw the first comic strip, which was a Krusty the Clown comic. Somebody had written it. I don't, don't know who it might have been Steve Vance, but it could have been somebody else. Could have been Mary Trainer. Um, I'm not really sure. But I had always wanted to be a comic book artist. And because I this is this is a weird thing to admit, but I, I grew up <laughs> in Detroit, Michigan, and I was terrified of New York City. And when I was growing up, New York is where all the comic book publishers were. So for me to get into comics, I had to go to New York <laughs> and, and actually live there because, you, you know, you couldn't 
there's no telecommuting and there's, you know, you had to actually go and be able to go into the office. Yeah. You didn't have zoom back then. So, no. So, <laughs> um, I'd never been to New York, but I was raised in an era where New York at least was portrayed on television and in movies as a really dangerous, bad place to be. You know, so I, I was raised on too many Martin Scorsese movies and seventies cop shows and, I was just like, no, 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 no. I don't want to go to New York. You know, as much as I want to be a comic book artist, um, I'm headed out to California where I can do this, you know, airbrush stuff that I've started doing and have gotten into. And, you know, so that was what I did. But still, all those years, for all those years, I harbored this desire to be a comic artist. So when I was given that assignment, it was like, oh, this is great. I finally get to draw a comic strip. You know, I was just thrilled. So when I finished, I, I called Steve, who was the editor, and I said, hey, Steve, you know, I, I had a really great time doing that Krusty strip, and I know we're working on the second issue, so if you have another script I, you know, that hasn't been assigned out yet, I'd love to do it. And Steve said, well, I'll tell you, we're really behind schedule on issue two, and nobody's had time to write anything yet. But Matt really wants to have comics in every issue. So why don't you write something and then you can also draw it? And I said, oh, okay, that sounds fine. And then I hung up the phone and I thought, what did I just do? Because I've never <laughs> written anything in my life. What, you know, holy, holy crap. What am I going to do? I don't know how to write. I don't even know how to type. How am I, how am I going to do this? So I sat down and I thought about, like something funny that happened to me as a kid. And I thought, well, what if I take that story and I just change me into Bart and I change, you know, my dad into Homer or, you know, whoever the adults were into appropriate Simpsons characters. So I did that and I wrote a story and um, Matt liked it. And I, I think he rewrote the punchline and made it funnier, but um, overall he liked it. And so I did the second comic. And then every issue, because I was now writing and Steve was writing, we started expanding the comic section. So, you know, it went from one page to three pages to five pages to 10 pages. So at the end of the first year, it was a quarterly magazine. At the end of the first year, we did a, uh, an annual. And for the first annual, we made it a 3D issue. So, you know, it came with the 3D glasses and everything in the issue was in 3d and that was a big hit. And, you know, we went into our second year, but then we, you know, like midway through the year, we had to start thinking, okay, the annual's coming up. What, what do we do to top the 3d issue? You know, we have to do something that's kind of a gimmick. Right. And uh, by that time we were having so much fun doing the comics that somebody either Matt or Steve uh, said, why don't we just make it a comic book? Why don't we just make it all comics and, you know, we could do it comic book size. We could call it Simpsons comics and stories as an homage to Disney comics and stories. Everyone loved that idea. So that's what we did. So that was the first Simpsons comic book, even though secretly it was an annual issue of the magazine. Like if you look at the indicia on the inside, it actually says Simpsons illustrated. It says oh, I think wow, it says never noticed that. comics and stories, a publication of Simpsons illustrated or something like that. So by this time, 
everybody, um, even before this, all the major publishers had approached Matt about doing a Simpsons comic book. Um, they wanted to license it. And so they first went to Fox and then Fox said, we don't have the rights. You got to go to Matt Groening. So people will go to, you know, Marvel will go to Matt Groening, DC, all the publishers would approach him. And he kept saying no, because he thought someday I want to have a comic book company. And if, if I'm able to do Simpsons comics, I don't want to have the rights tied up with Marvel or some other company. So he kept saying no. And he, he's, you know, kind of kept this idea out there that maybe someday we could do Simpsons comics. So the success of Simpsons comics and stories was so great. It was such a big hit that that was what gave Matt the, I guess, the courage to, to start a comic book company. And he basically came to us, me and Steve and Cindy. And he said, you know, I think the success of Simpsons comics and stories um, shows that we could sustain a comic book. You know, we could do a regular line of Simpsons comics and people would buy them. So uh, that, that's what we did. We started in 1993. We decided to go to San Diego Comic-Con and announce that we were starting a line of comic books, that we were starting Bongo Comics. So at that time we had Simpsons comics and stories and we did a signing, you know, with that book. But we handed out all kinds of literature postcards and we did this little ash can that was like the fake history of bongo comics <laughs> i don't know if you've ever seen that but it's, no i would love to see that i've never seen that it's um it's really rare and it's it's um, one of those things that fans go crazy for when they find out somebody has one yeah i need one of those <laughs> um, i might be able to hook you up because uh I, I kept a few <laughs> well bill i you know, I, you know as a big fan I wouldn't say no, my friend. <laughs> well, anyway, we we um we handed out a bunch of things like that to retailers, you know, just to generate excitement, get people interested, and, and let them know that in November, Simpsons comics were coming. And um, I remember we did an ad that said, "Start saving your allowance because it's great, Bongo's coming." And uh, yeah, so it was exciting. It was you know just to be in on the ground floor of a brand new comic book company. And at that time, there was, you know, it was the height of Simpsons mania. You know, everybody was excited. Everybody wanted us to do a signing. Everybody wanted us to do a, a cover. Like all the magazines wanted, you know, special covers. And, you know, because they were doing articles on Bongo. That made it kind of tough because I remember I would be working on Simpsons number one or Radioactive Man number one or whatever. And I would get a call from Steve and he would say, hey, we have to do a cover for Wizard Magazine. So stop what you're doing. And, you know, here's the layout, you know, can you do this cover? And then I would do it. And he was in the same boat. He had to, you know, he'd get a call and he'd have to stop what he was doing and, you know, design a cover or write something. And uh, it kept putting us further and further behind till finally when we were getting to the point where we had to actually start turning in finished pages to the printer and, and get these things printed. We were just like, dangerously behind and i remember going to like steve and cindy had a um, studio in their home and i would bring my sleeping bag i would go down and sleep on the floor and we would just you know just around the clock sleep for a couple of hours and then get up and do it all over again until we got those books done 
Wow. And I remember at one point, I don't remember what book it was. It might have been uh, Bartman, number one. Steve was doing layouts. So he was doing like rough layouts, but they weren't really on model. And uh, he would hand them over to me. So I'm in his studio. He'd hand them over to me. I would put them on a light table, light box, and I would skip the penciling phase. So I would go right to inking over his layout. So I'd put a piece of layout paper over his layout and I would rule all my panel borders. And then I would just start inking and I would make corrections while I was inking. So normally you do that in the pencil phase. You look at the layouts and then you, you know, you put everything on model and then it goes to the inker or if you're the inker, then you ink it. And uh, there wasn't any any time for that. So, oh my God. um, And I had it down to, uh, because we were, you know, I wasn't using a brush and having to fill in a lot of uh, shadowing and, you know, you're not doing like the feathering on the, you know, like if I'm drawing Radioactive Man and he's got a muscle, normally if you're doing a superhero book, you got to do all kinds of cross hatching and feathering. Right. <laughs> we weren't doing any of that at that point. So they were, they were pretty simple, but I had it down to, I, I timed it and I was inking a page every half hour. So Amazing. I oh inked the whole book in like about a day and a half, I think. Oh my God. Bill, here's a, here's a good question. Are you insane? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm not, but I was young. I, I'll say that I was young and um, I didn't need a lot of sleep. Also, there was just so much excitement around it. You know, it's like, you know, we're putting out these comic books. They're, they're going to be historic. The fans are really excited about them. So you kind of don't think about the time you're putting in and the and the work and not sleeping. Uh, you just, I think we were just kind of going on adrenaline, I guess. But um, no, I love it. And there might have been a little bit of crazy in there, <laughs> just a little bit. No, I, you know, Bill, I love that, and I love, I mean, because you know, the comics are something that I love. Aside from just the show, like the comics are so great to look at. There's so many amazing pieces of art. I often say that like the covers alone, I've probably spent as much time staring at as I have the actual, you know, reading the books. And, um, you know, a thing that I, that I always thought was cool. And, you know, I read comics as a kid, but I don't think I followed any as closely as the Simpsons comics as a huge Simpsons fan. And, you know, you guys would always sort of change the title every like 40 issues on the comic. It would sort of change just a little bit. Is that a normal thing to do in comics? What inspired that? That's kind of a normal thing in comics, um, but sometimes it's just the whim of the person in charge, um, just wanting to freshen things up and give it a, a new look. Um, I remember with Simpsons comics, we had a logo initially that didn't look like the show logo. It did somewhat because it had like a real hand-drawn look, but the the look of the show logo and and what was on all the merchandise, it was so prevalent. It was just everywhere. And I think by that time, um, I was creative director and I was editing the books. And I think I wanted the comic books to just look more like the merchandise, you know, to to just have a cohesive look in terms of the logo and the branding and all that. So I think that was why we changed the Simpsons Comics logo to like the bigger S. Right. Um, Originally, like the, the lettering was all all the letter forms were kind of the same height and weight. 
It's very similar to the to the the logo used on a lot of the earliest merchandise. Like I think it's very similar to like the Mattel box. Um, it's sort of like what's on the arcade machine as well on those yeah. first thirty nine issues. I personally, I'll say that's my favorite Simpsons logo. <laughs> the early one. Yeah, I love yeah. it. It just looks so. I don't know. Some I love how it's just so rough and handwritten. And yeah, it's, like it's very so... chunky and rough. In the early ones, it kind of moved too. Yeah, on screen, and that was cool. I love it. Um, so I think David Silverman did that. And I think he did, he drew the, the logo like about four or five different times and then they just cycled through. So it had that wiggly, weird look. It's so great. Um, well, you know, we talked about how you, you also wrote for the comics. You didn't just work on the art side of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of the biggest challenges of writing like a component that goes along with the show without, you know, making it feel different? Um, I th- I guess the biggest challenge is, um, comic books have certain limitations when you look at them versus animation. So obviously we don't have music. Uh, we don't have the voices, uh, sound effects. We don't have the animation. We don't have the movement. So we have to try to tell a story that's, that feels like a Simpsons episode um, without all of those things. But there are also things that comic books do that animation can't do. So it's finding the balance between those two things. It's like finding what are the strengths of comics? You know, what things do comics do that, um, that the TV show can't do and use those things to kind of try to make people forget that they're not hearing the music and seeing the motion and and all that. Um, One of the great things about a show that's iconic as the Simpsons is and I've heard this from a lot of fans who uh, read the comics and love the show. They say, you know, when I read the comics, I can hear Homer's voice. I can hear Marge's voice. Like when I read those dialogue balloons and that, that to me as editor, that was my biggest, or to me, it was my most important job was to make um, like if a, a writer turned in a script and I was reading it and, you know, I'm reading one of Homer's lines. And if in my head, it doesn't really sound like Homer, like I can't picture Homer saying that. Right. And I would suggest, you know, Homer wouldn't really say it like that. He would say it more like this. And then I would like, like kind of give a suggested line for how Homer would react or how he would say this. And that was the thing I, I think as editor, I did more often than not. It's probably the, um, I don't know if it's, I don't want to say it's the most difficult thing, but it's probably the most important thing is to get the voices right and also get the motivations right. You know, like if somebody did a script where Lisa's eating meat, you know, obviously I've got to say, well, she doesn't do that anymore. She's a vegetarian now. So, but uh, I think, I think the fact that I was also such a big fan of the show and still am, but I mean, in the early days, I, you know, we didn't have DVDs. We didn't sometimes even have VHS copies in the <laughs> early days. Right. I would tape everything at home. I would, I would make my own every Sunday night. I, you know, if, if I missed an episode, it was a kind of a crisis because I had to, I had to be able to study those and refer back to those episodes and, you know, make sure we weren't doing something that was out of continuity or, you know. Did you hold on to any of those tapes? I think I still have them all. Wow. At, at one point, <laughs> this was weird. Um, we had this closet at Bongo, like a um, closet with shelves. 
and um, we had every episode on VHS. Most of those were my personal copies. Like I brought them in <laughs> and I think I put like a little red sticker or something on the ones that were mine. And sometimes we would get copies of um, tapes from Gracie or from Fox and those would all get mixed in to the, uh, to the collection. But uh, when I left, I did take all of my original copies with me. So some of those actually still have the original commercials that aired with the episodes. I love that. Well, you know, I had um, Bob and Henry from Talking Simpsons on. I know you've spoke with them before. Um, love those guys. And they uh, always talk about how they recorded the episodes and how it was such a thing. And Henry would talk about how he had to, you know, he would try to trim out the commercials and things like that and had just how much he regrets it. You know, that's yeah. almost as fun to watch as the show. <laughs> yeah, I never did that. I guess because sometimes I would, or more often than not, I would set the VCR to record because I was out at a movie or, you know, doing something else. So I wasn't sitting there with my finger on the button, you know, stopping it whenever the commercial came on. Um, (laughs) So I actually, there's one, um, the telltale head episode that the second time it aired, they changed it. Oh yeah, that's right. And I still have the original airing of that. Wow. And I don't remember which one they put on the DVD. I assume they put the second one. on. I think it's the second one on the DVD. Yeah. Yeah, but that first um, that first airing, I guess, is is rare unless they put that on on an extras or, or something like that. I don't I don't think so. And in fact, what what is I can't even remember the change now. I haven't even thought about that in quite a while. It's right at the end, and I I don't remember exactly either. It's something in the dialogue at the end. Um, oh, that's right. That's right. After Homer after Homer rescues Bart from the angry mob. That's right. Yeah, I won't I won't um I won't bore people with me trying to remember it on this episode, but I'm sure some of you are screaming at me and just trust that by the time you hear this, I've looked it up and I've yeah. you know. <laughs> um well I, I also want to know this, Bill, because you know, you obviously you've drawn as many Simpsons, if not more Simpsons than anybody. Uh what is the number one mistake you think people make when drawing the Simpsons? Well, you got good questions. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Thank you. I try. The number one mistake, probably um, it's not it's not really one specific mistake, but it's kind of a stylistic thing where and I kind of mentioned it earlier where like when I would draw the characters, I would try to put more into it than than was necessary. Right. So I think one of the mistakes is to try to make them you know, like look more like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon or a, a Disney cartoon, you know, to, to give them too much anatomy or, you know, to just do too much with them. Yeah. I, I think, I think when I was a kid, the main mistake I would make is I would, I would give Bart like either too much of a forehead or just too big of a head. Like I would make his head too fat. Well, one of the early on, I mean, nobody, nobody really does this anymore because it's one of those rules that I think has been, um, kind of hammered home and we did a, a, a book at bongo the simpsons handbook which mm, um great one. which shows everyone how to draw the characters and it has all those little do's and don'ts all the rules and um, it's a great book one of them was crossing the eyes and i i think in very early on that was probably the most common episode because in cartoons generally like if a character gets hit in the head or um you know, they do a take, they react to something crazy that just happened, their eyes get crossed, you know, they, that's, 
the natural cartoon <laughs> reaction across the eyes. And Matt decided early on, uh, probably even in Life and Hell, I don't think he ever drew characters with crossed eyes. He would always make them go the other way, the pupils. He would make them wall-eyed. Um, mm. So if somebody was reacting to something or, um, you know, Bart hits Homer in the head, head with his slingshot, Homer's pupils would go to the outer edges of his eyes rather than, you know, closer together. So that was one of those things that I think they had to sort of sort of weed out of the animators, you know, in the early days, because a lot of these animators came from, you know, Hanna-Barbera or Disney or right. vastly different styles. And they had to, you know, learn the do's and don'ts of the Simpsons. And that was a big one. But I, I remember seeing like early drawings where characters were cross-eyed. So I, I think a lot of people <laughs> made that mistake. Well, you know, I, I've, you know, doing this podcast and even just running my Instagram and my Twitter, I've been very vocal about my hatred of websites that Simpsonize people. You know, have you seen these? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it drives me insane. I think it's a literal nightmare. I can't stand it. Uh, they always reach out to me and want to do like some partnership. And I'm like, I, you know, I'm not doing that. Um, none of them look anything like Simpsons. So the reason I ask, you know, the number one mistake, I feel like people think it's as simple as giving someone an overbite and like big eyes and they look like Simpsons and that just drives me nuts. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not as easy as it looks. Um, I was, I was art director on Futurama, which obviously the character design, it has a lot of the same rules. Right. And so a lot of the, um, the, like the celebrity heads in jars, I would, I would have to do the caricatures and it's hard. Um, like, especially if you have somebody, <laughs> like if I was doing you, you know, you've got a big beard, um, under that beard, it looks like you probably got a strong jawline. Hey, um, I appreciate that. Maybe sort of, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> so that's out the window right off the bat, you know, with a Simpsons caricature, you know, the characters all have no chin, um, and then the big overbite and the bulgy eyes. So if somebody's got kind of small squinty eyes or they've the Simpsons characters were not really designed to look like real people. No. <laughs> um, so, you know, the minute they started having celebrity guest stars, that became a bit of a problem. Yeah. Um, I can, I can, I've always thought it was amazing when they could actually pull it off and it not look really weird. Yeah. And, you know, I think over time they've said, okay, these are the rules for designing, you know, basic characters on the show. And then if we have, if we have to make it actually look like somebody, then we break a few rules and then, you know, we go this far, but no further. And I think they're very successful for the most part. You know, you can really tell who the person's supposed to be amazingly, even though when they had Jay Leno on the show, <laughs> I looked at that one and I was like, okay, they've really like, he barely has an overbite. He's got this big jaw um yeah he barely looks like he's in the simpsons world for sure yeah but they did you know they did it i mean it, you know it's really pushing it but he still looks like he's part of that universe yeah it works um, it tries you know i really don't like doing um fans always ask me for caricatures of themselves or their or their wife or their baby right i don't really like doing it for that reason because you know, if somebody walked up to me and they had no chin and big bulgy eyes, I'd be like, perfect. 
I will draw you in a heartbeat and you'll look exactly like a Simpsons character. <laughs> but otherwise it's always, it always comes out kind of weird. Yeah. And I, you know, I just don't think, you know, and, and nothing, I have nothing against the people running those accounts or maybe I do. I don't know. Maybe some of you are jerks, but I just, I think it's such a, you know, and no offense to anyone that likes them. You know, if you've gotten a portrait made by somebody like that and you have it framed in your house and you love it, you know, I don't mean to sound like a jerk. Um, but I just personally think that that's like such a bizarre way to make a quick buck when to me, it's one of the most atrocious things I've ever seen. Like 90% of the time, it's just so hard on my eyes. Yeah. I, you know, I've at comic shows, I've, I've done caricatures of people on request and almost every time I hand it to them and I really want to pull it back because I don't like <laughs> it. If they get, I don't think it looks like them, you know, I think it's ugly. But not, you know, I haven't. I can't think of any time I've done that where the reaction wasn't, "Oh my God, that's great! Oh, that's hilarious! It looks just like me, or it looks just like my wife." Right. And I always go, "Okay." <laughs> I mean, I've seen I've seen videos of of you drawing some you know caricatures of people, and you know, I gotta say, but I think they look great. If I was gonna have one done, um, you know, which that's not really something I need, but. I, you know, if it was done by you, even your critique of it aside, I'm sure it would look great because you know what you're doing. But a lot of these other accounts, it's like, oh, I'm just sort of tracing their photo, making them yellow. Boom. It's a Simpson. It's not. But, you know, I won't harp on that anymore. Uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, you mentioned Futurama and I was going to touch on that a little bit. You know, you did contribute greatly to Futurama. How did you find time to work on that and Bongo and all these other things at the same time? I think that comes back to me asking if you're crazy. Yeah, I really don't know. Um, I've thought about that myself because um, I was I was still creative director at Bongo while I was art director on Futurama, and I really don't I don't remember that driving me crazy. Um, I mean, I do remember it stressing my marriage a little bit because the hours were super long. But I will say, even though my credit was art director on Futurama for a good portion of that first four years, I wasn't really doing the job of art director. Um, the way this, the way this came about was, uh, when Matt Groening started sort of, uh, devising Futurama in his head and it got to the point where he had it figured out, he knew what he wanted to do. Now he just had to design the characters and pitch it to Fox or pitch it to whoever. So because I was already working for him at Bongo, he would borrow me a couple of days a week to come to his studio and just work with him on designing the show. So he would hand me like a paragraph on a character and he'd say, you know, Leela is an alien. At the time she was an alien. They hadn't figured out that she was a mutant yet. Oh, wow. But originally she was an alien and, and uh, he'd say, she's an alien. She's a Cyclops and she knows martial arts. <laughs> and um, and she's really sexy in a weird, in a weird, scary kind of way. You know, it would be something <laughs> as simple as that. I don't know if that's exactly what he told me, but it was as simple as that. And then I would go off and I would do a bunch of drawings of what I thought this character might look like. And they were almost all not what Matt wanted. But I realized that was my job. My job was basically to show him things that he didn't really like so he could figure out what he did like. And it, and that was the process. You know, he would look at my drawings and he would go, eh, 
no, I don't, I don't really like this. I do like the hair, you know? So let's keep the hair. And then he would do a drawing based on my drawing. And he'd say, let's do the hair like you got it, but then do the nose like this and do the face like, you know. And then, so he would give me a drawing and then I would go back and I would kind of refine that. And that's how we would get to what the characters ended up looking like. So I did all that. I worked on, you know, character designs with Matt. I worked on um, backgrounds, vehicles, props, all the stuff that he needed to show Fox to say, this is the world we're creating. And, you know, these are the characters and, you know, to just pitch it. So I did that. And then, you know, I kind of quietly went back to my, you know, full five days a week at Bongo. He pitched the show, the show sold. He got uh, rough draft animation on board. They started working on character designs based on the stuff that that we had done. And uh, the writers were hired. And the next thing I know, Bongo's moving to a new building, which is a, a, a building owned by Fox. Mm. And what happened was Matt, they basically set Matt up in a Fox building, like a whole floor of a building. And Matt said, I would really like to have Bongo with me, you know, so I don't have to keep going back and forth across town. I want to, I want to have space for Bongo to be in the same building. Right. So they did that. And and they, so next thing you know, Bongo's moving to this Fox building, but, but we're separate, but we're, you know, we're close to Matt. So because I was right down the hallway, whenever they were having either problems with a character design that wasn't working or the guys at Rough Draft, people at Rough Draft were just overwhelmed. They had too much stuff going on. They would bring work down to me and they would say, hey, Bill, could you just do, you know, could you help out with this character? Could you just do this? And so I started, you know, I'd put my bongo things aside and I would do this job and then I would hand it off and then I would pick up the bongo stuff again. And over the course of, you know, like a couple of weeks or a month, it started to be where I was getting called to do this Futurama stuff all the time and having to stay late. And, (laughs) you know, it, it was just, you know, it was getting to be a lot of work, which I was fine with, but I realized I'm not getting paid any extra and I'm not getting a credit on the show. This is just stuff that they're, you know, they're able to, to get me to do for free. Sure. So I went down and, and spoke to one of the producers on the show, made an appointment. And I said, um, you know, I'm doing a lot of this design work and I, I love doing it. It's really fun, but you know, it's getting to be a lot. And I, I kind of feel like I should be compensated in addition to, you know, what I'm making at Bongo. And I feel like I should have a credit on the show. And they were like, oh, you're absolutely right. Of course. You know, we, sorry, we're just so busy. We hadn't, you didn't even think of it, you know, but yes, you're absolutely right. You should have a credit. We'll get you a salary. So they asked me, what do you, what do you think your credit should be? <laughs> and I thought that was weird because <laughs> usually they tell you what your credit is. They don't really ask you what you think it should be. Yeah. And, um, I said, I don't know, I guess, you know, character designer, because that's mostly what I'm doing, but I'm also designing spaceships and, you know, ray guns and, you know, I'm doing a lot of stuff, but I I would say character design is mostly it. And the producer said, oh, no, you can't, you can't have character designer. Somebody else already has that title um, over, over at Rough Draft. 
So, you know, we don't want to step on any toes because you don't work for the animation studio. You work for Matt Groening. So you got to have something that's not one of the titles that they have over, over there. And I said, well, okay, I don't know then, you know, do you have a suggestion? And they said, well, how about art director? And I said, that sounds better than character designer. Sure. <laughs> that sounds more important. I'll take that. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to look good on IMDb. That's going to look real good. Um, so, so they made me art director, even though what I mostly did was just design work. However, the person who really was the art director and her title was co-producer was Millie Smythe. So Matt had brought Millie in. She's and you know, talk about you know wearing a lot of different hats. She's still doing all the approvals on the Simpsons stuff. Now she's also doing approvals on the Futurama merchandise that's going to be coming out. Oh, wow. And she has to look at every design that comes from Rough Draft and make notes and then hand that off to David X. Cohen and Matt Graney. So I'm working with Millie and, you know, she's got a co-producer title and I'm art director, but I'm really not. Well, Millie got pregnant and she and her husband uh, had twins and she went on maternity leave. So while she was on leave, they had me take over her duties. Wow. So at that point, I really felt like I was doing the job of art director, even though I hadn't before I thought, well, now I'm really doing it. So now at that point I was, I was still doing designs for the show, still doing all my bongo work. And, but also looking at all the designs that came over from rough draft, making notes and then passing those up to the big guys. Yeah. So that was, you know, probably the most busy time of my career, but, uh, (laughs) but it was fun. You know, it was just, it was super fun to go to the table reads and, you know, to read the scripts and, you know, we would highlight the things that needed to be designed and, and then you got to come up with those things. And, and then when you finally see it on the screen, it's, it's amazing. You know, it, it, it is amazing. So, you know, in, anyone that's, you know, I'm assuming most of you are familiar with Bill Morrison, but if you're not, I hope that if nothing else, hearing just his absurd contribution to all of these things, I mean, Futurama, especially, um, it, you know, is something that I, I don't, know if some of you knew, but it's an, it's an amazing thing to see just how much you know work Bill had on his plate at that time. It's pretty amazing. Um, and to that same point, you know, I've, I've seen you post and share line work for various projects and, you know, many of which it's hard to even remember what it went to, which I mean, obviously it would be, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> totally get that. Um, it seems like you kept a lot of that stuff. I'm really glad that you did. Yeah, I have, I, I don't throw things away. So I, have copies of just about everything I did, but um, not everything. So a lot of times I'll see something that I remember doing and think, where did that go? How come I don't have a copy of that? Or I you know, don't have the original pencil drawing or at least the rough drawing for that. But sometimes I'll see something that I did that I don't even remember I did, or I remember doing it, or I could look at it and tell that I did it, but I have no idea what it was for. <laughs> and that's where I've really come to rely on fans because I'll go on Facebook on the fan sites and I'll post something and I'll say, does anyone know what this was for? You know, I know I drew this and I know it was probably, you know, around 1994 or whatever, but I, I don't know what it was for. And then the fans know automatically. And if they don't know, they find out. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember seeing you post some of that. I was just like, oh, wait a minute. I know that's from, uh, you know, you had to think about it, but it's, you know, 
Um, I, I don't know. I love, I love seeing all that. And, you know, obviously, um, I say this at the end, towards the end of every episode, but I'm, I'm a collector and that's a large reason that I started this Instagram and everything that I do. And, you know, I, I'm curious, aside from your own stuff or even stuff that you did work on, did you hold on to much of the actual product or did you, you know, are you much of a collector of, of things aside from that? I, I, I at one time had a lot of the product and over time, you know, I've either gifted things to people or uh, on a few occasions I've sold some things. When I was at Fox initially, I was working in-house at the, uh, in the uh, licensing and merchandising department. So I was, you know, drawing almost all the Simpsons merchandise art. And I was also learning Millie's job because there was so much being done in the way of merchandise that she couldn't handle it all. And so they needed somebody to learn how to do the approvals and and do what she was doing. And I still, sometimes if she goes on vacation, they'll bring me in to, um, to do that. But while I was there, I was, I was actually working in house at Fox for about four years and they had this um, big, um, I call it a closet because it didn't have windows, but it was a big room, like a big interior room where they kept all the product samples. And, you know, it was a big room, but it would, there was so much merchandise coming out that it would fill up and they would have to get rid of it to make room for new stuff. So these were all, you know, mostly hand samples that would come to the creative executives. Once they weren't working on that project anymore, it would go into the storage room or sometimes they would just get samples from you know, like production samples after the, everything was approved and it was manufactured and those would be stored in there as well. And I remember there was a, a distribution to certain people like Matt Groening and James Brooks and Sam Simon. And on a weekly basis, these big boxes would sit in the hallway and they would get filled with merchandise that went over to, these executives, you know, these people working on the show and all that stuff would just go into a storage locker, you know, it would sit in Matt Groening or whoever's office for a while. And then it would just get given to relatives or, you know, I think Matt tried to keep one of everything. So he's got storage lockers somewhere that are, you know, just full of Simpson stuff. Wow. Um, but every so often, once in a while, they would let all of us employees take a bag and go through the storage closet because they needed more space. <laughs> and, and so it was like shopping. They give you a big bag and you would just go through and just go, oh, I want one of those. And usually I pick stuff that had my artwork on it because I thought I need this for my archive. Sure. But sometimes like if it was close to Christmas or like one of my uh, nieces or nephew's birthday, I would you know, sort of have an eye out for, oh, I bet Justin would like that. I bet Laura would love that. (laughs) Um, So I would, you know, just constantly bring the stuff home. And then also like usually, not usually, but pretty often when you uh, work on something, they'll send you a sample of it just so you have it for, for your records. So I've had a lot of Simpsons merchandise. Um, I don't have as much as I used to have just Again, because for space, you know. Oh yeah, I collect Batman. Batman is my thing. I do enjoy Batman also. <laughs> so I've got boxes and boxes and shelves and shelves full of Batman stuff. So I'm at I'm kind of at the point right now where the stuff that I keep is mostly the stuff that 
either it has my artwork or it's something that I just think is too cool to get rid of. Right. You know, if it's something that's really unique and fun and cool, well, I'll hang on to it. Well, whenever, whenever they invent time travel, you know, as long as it's within my lifetime, uh, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get a job at that marketing department. I'm going to go in that closet. <laughs> it was, you know, if you could do that with the, with the, the, uh, the mindset, you know, of actually knowing what this stuff's going to be worth someday. Oh my God. Saving it. Um, that would be something. Well, you know, because, you know, I, obviously I collect from every country and in any Simpsons thing, especially, you know, from 89 to 97, pretty much before the packaging changed. And I like beyond that also, but I'm a little more particular. I love anything that's in a green or a white or a pink box. I just, I just lose it over that. And, um, uh-huh. when you look, you know, into this stuff and I talk about this a lot, but you just realize it's never ending. So if I could just see that closet, if there, if there were photos of that closet, I would just lose it. You know, you know what? I wish I had taken photos of that. I mean, people would have thought I was weird if I did, because it would just, you know, why would you, why would you do that? But uh, I would, I would kill to see it. But yeah, looking back, if I, I wish I'd had the foresight to do that. Um, some of the things I still have, like I, I really like, and, and Matt, Matt is the same way with um, stuff that's like either knockoffs or off model um, samples. Yeah. Like a lot of times the licensees early on, like they didn't understand the characters at all. So they would turn in a sample of the product, the doll or whatever it was they were going to do. And it's hideous. And I kept some of those things. I'm sure you, I'm sure you're quite familiar with this. Then my favorite Simpsons line ever is Dandy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I have so many dandies. I have some samples that were never produced. Um, and, and I'm still finding samples to this day. Uh, like maybe a year ago, um, this guy was going to sell some. And for the first time in, you know, since I've been collecting, there's, we know now that there's, a, there was a Bartman dandy that was never made. Mm-hmm. He's wearing an orange shirt. There's, you know, a grandpa. People know about grandpa. There was a crusty. Those are never really made. So, you know, that stuff, especially, I just, I love how hideous those dolls are. Like I have one of Bart in boxer shorts with hearts. Um, and there's, there's some, there are some variants of that that were made, but this one never was whatever. And you know, the same, I, I just, that same stuff that you're talking about, the stuff that's weird, that's off model. That's what I just lose it over. Love it. Yeah. I still got, uh, I remember the, the executives at the creative executives at Fox licensing knew that I liked this weird stuff. And sometimes, you know, this certain things wouldn't even go into the storage closet if they just had it lying around their office and they had to get rid of it. They would come over to me and go, hey, Bill, I know you like this stuff. Do you want this? And I go, <laughs> yeah, sure. That's great. Um, but I've got like some of the original resin um, sculpts for dolls like um, Nelson and uh, I've got some Lisa and Bart and Homer. I don't know if they were dandy or um uh they so they were going to make some like uh hard head ones also like i know there was going to be an auto yeah and uh you know some stuff like that i had and, the original uh, auto uh prototype um uh, bill and, you're breaking my heart here and you're i sold it me. i sold it oh I, no i i do own but it, but it was it was the full doll so it had the um plastic arms and the plastic head and uh, and the clothes and everything, but it wasn't painted. So like his hair was the same color yellow as his face. So it, you know, it wasn't black. But yeah, I had that. 
Um, God, that's amazing. Yeah. Do you remember the, uh, I'm sure you do, the Hamilton Gifts dolls? Like the ones that are, uh, there was like a big and a small version and they were like one of the first yeah. like 3D dolls that came in bags. Yeah. Um, I actually own all the prototypes for those. I, I oh, bought wow. those. Like, uh, year. So they're like the actual original sculpts, but they are painted also. Someone painted them and like underneath their feet, like written in pen, it'll say like large Lisa, uh-huh. Marge. And the Marge actually is pretty weird is actually a little more like realistic in shape in the, in the uh, prototype than she was in the finished doll. Like if I put them side by side, I, I almost feel like it was like they gave a note that was like, yeah, maybe make her a little less like shapely. Uh-huh. Cause she like almost, yeah, so that kind of stuff, you know, especially the, the earliest dolls. I know those were some of the earliest. Yeah. Um, that stuff's really crazy to look at. And they're actually, they're beautiful dolls. They look great. I'll have to send you some photos. Um, uh, next time I come across those. Yeah, please do. Uh, Please yeah, do. Ones I still have. Well, Bill, I could pick your brain for hours and I would love to have you on again to talk about, you know, cause I, I could ask you questions forever and I'm sure we could find a lot more to talk about. So I'd love to do a part two eventually. Sure. Um, but you know, you're an Eisner award winning artist. One of my favorite people to ever draw the Simpsons. You just have such a long list of, you know, great work under your belt. So anyone that's not familiar, please get familiar with Bill. And, uh, you know, before we go, is there anything you're working on that you want to plug? Any shout outs or anything you want to do? Anything like that? Um, well, uh, while I was at Bongo, I did a, a comic book that was not uh, Simpsons related. And it was called Roswell, Little Green Man. And I'm finally resurrecting that as an online. Oh, fantastic. Comic. And so that, that'll be coming out in November from Aces Weekly, which is a UK uh, comic site. I did a Beatles Yellow Submarine adaptation a few years ago. So I'm working on um, another Beatles book, which um, it's a little too early to talk about that yet, but sometime next year, that'll be out. Um, another Yellow wow. Submarine book. That's probably about it for now. Right on. Well, um, that all sounds awesome. And I can't wait to see that. And Bill, again, uh, we'll, we'll get you back on the schedule. We'll do a part two. I'll, I'll just bother you as much as I can. And uh, I'd love to come back. Thanks, Warren. Yeah, this is fun. Awesome. That was great. It was great, Bill. Thank you so much, man. You bet. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out the official Instagram at Simpsons is greater than, or follow me on Twitter at Simpsons is great. If you're curious about me or my Simpsons collection, just search for Bart of Darkness on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks again for checking this out. I'll see you next week.